Welcome to the Jazz Shapers podcast from Mishkondorea. What you're about to hear was originally broadcast on Jazz FM. However, the music has been cut or shortened due to rights issues. This is Jazz Shapers with Elliot Moss on Jazz FM. Listening colour. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Welcome to Jazz Shapers. I'm Elliot Moss. It's where the shapers of business join the shapers of jazz, soul and blues. My guest today, I'm very pleased to say, is Ash Atala, one of the UK's best-known comedy producers, the producer of The Office and the IT crowd, to name but two, and he's co-founder of Rough Cut TV. Born in Cairo, as he says, to ambitious, supportive parents, two doctors, Ash moved to Northern Ireland with his father's job. After a brief stint as a stockbroker, Ash says he hit quite an unexpected iceberg with the whole city thing not working out. After a difficult three years trying to cling on at the BBC, when I landed at the comedy department, it was the first time since I sat my A-levels that I knew what I was doing. The Office, a brilliantly observed satire about ordinary office life in a slough paper mill and one of my favourite comedies ever, brought Ash enormous and early success as well. And as he said, an endless restlessness to do the next thing. He founded Rough Cut TV in 2007 with Tim Seeley, head of production, and their shows include the brilliant People Just Do Nothing, the mockumentary comedy about a pirate radio station, and the sitcoms Cuckoo and Trollid. We'll talk to Ash in a few minutes about all of this, his fascination with the everyday, and his plans to expand into drama. We've also got brilliant music from, amongst others, Grover Washington Jr., Sarah Vaughan, and Miles Davis. That, ladies and gentlemen, is today's Jazz Shapers. Here's Robert Glasper and So Beautiful. That was Robert Glasper with So Beautiful. I'm here with the So Beautiful Ash Atala. He's my business shaper today. He's the co-founder of Rough Cut, uh, comedy producer, famous, famous in the world of telly, and here he is. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Elliot. So, Ash, this TV thing, at what point did you realise that television might save you? You were in the world of stockbroking. It obviously didn't work out. How did you end up coming into this world? Well, I, I ended up just wondering what the very opposite of stockbroking was because I was so bad at it it wasn't just a question of like shifting a few degrees left or right it was a big rethink that was required in my life because I'm actually quite bad at maths very bad at maths and the fact that I ended up in stockbroking the fact that I got so far is a testament to my um, lack of (laughs) self-awareness by (laughs) realizing that I shouldn't do it my father's drive um, was it him that suggested you go into it in well, the first you know, place? Well, you know, I was a child of the 80s, and so that kind of financial big boom stuff and the massive mobile phones, the stripy shirts, the red Porsches, all those stories of, you know, I, I don't know if you remember, but, you know, oh, yeah, the guy that comes around to clean our windows got a job trading in the city, and he's now worth $9 million. And, you know, I'm sure it was all really untrue, but it was very seductive mm. at the time. And... Um, your listeners uh, may not know, but I'm in a wheelchair, so they might as well know that. Uh, there you go, I've said it first. And I was just trying to think of something that I could do from the wheelchair, I mean, which is essentially any desk job. 
But here was this sort of very glamorous, new, high, flying, very well-paid job. And I just thought, I'll do that. It looks fun. You get to shout a lot at other men in stripy shirts. And I thought, that looks <laughs> good. And you get lots of money. The money just comes in. I mean, what's the money? You know, you talk about being an 80s child, and I'm an 80s child too. And it was obviously, it was the the meta-narrative at the time. You know, you made it. And the uh, the Gordon Gecko, whoever it was from uh, that the very famous film, of course, whose name I've forgotten right now. Um, Michael Douglas. Michael Douglas, that one. will It'll come back to us. But that, it, it really was the dominant narrative. I mean, totally different to now. Were you, you said you were seduced. Was there no sense that that was a pretty empty and shallow thing to do? Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> there was no pool too shallow for me to dive into. <laughs> I, I, I am, you know, in, in truth, I always wanted to make some money. I, I always thought I might need some, actually, as well, because I always thought that, you know, to give myself a, a shot at life and the comforts that, that, that I might need or the support around me, and it was actually a very driven from my dad he was like well if you're going to be in a wheelchair and you are going to be in a wheelchair let's be clear then try and have a comfortable life around you and that might necessitate paying for things that other people don't have to so it was a narrative of my life and then you know I was uh, so, so I saw that and I thought well this could really combine the two things stockbroking and and that's sort of what I very very squarely and 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 aggressively aimed for really mm-hmm. With the one problem that I knew that I couldn't really let on, but I, I did sense that I wasn't going to be very good at it. And that is true, and I sort of covered that up for quite a long time, certainly to others and then to myself. And again, I think this world of stockbroking, and people in stockbroking would say this in the city, it's not a particularly creative thing to do in the way that producing um, a television program is. I'm not saying that there isn't creativity in that, but in terms of the product the product isn't something that will make people laugh, that will change their lives, that will think, help them think in a different way. Just help me understand that bridge between the world that you thought you might want to be in and then landing up in the world that you then joined. Well, as, I, as it became clear to me that I was not for stockbroking and stockbroking was not for me, I, I began, you know, and, and it was uh, a midlife crisis at around 25 or so, and I thought, I, I'm not going to make it in this world. I'm going to have a very difficult, low-level, poor career in, in that world. What shall I do next? And, you know, I'd always watched television comedy. I did have an interest in it. It didn't come out of nowhere. I was always a student of it, but, you know, in an amateur way. And I actually thought naively that I might try and be a television presenter. You know, it's the arrogance of youth or the ignorance of youth. And I just started writing letters to the BBC. I essentially was out of work. You know, I'd, I'd finished up in the city and sort of came shuddering to a halt. You know, the the system, GCSEs, A-levels, university, straight into a graduate trainee system in the city, and that didn't work out. So, yeah, I really was out of work and began to write letters to the the BBC. And, of course, what I didn't realise about television was there's no real structure to a career path. It's about who you know, it's about being persistent, it's about being able to afford to not be paid at the beginning. So I just started to pick off (laughs) names you know, contacts, and eventually, long story short, got some work experience at the BBC um, on a show called Watchdog that is still in existence. At what point did you kind of make it in your own head? Forget, I mean, make it to a position where you were happy. What, when did the comedy bit start to come into play? Well, I, I, I pinballed around the BBC for quite a long time and was very fearful that that wasn't going to work out either, but I didn't quite understand the very fluid nature of, of the TV industry. 
So at one point, you know, you could get contracts for two weeks, really. And it was quite difficult to explain that to my self and then also to my family. It was like, well, how's it going at the BBC? Yeah, well, I've got, you know, I know I've got a job until March. And where were you living at this point, Ash? You I was, on your own or you no, I was, you know, just done that university thing of moving up to London with all my friends. So I was living in a lad's flat in mm. Hammersmith. Very happy times. But, you know, they were all management consultants. They were all working for Anderson and, and you know, and, and banks and all that sort of stuff. So they were all on that train that I had just left. So it was sort of difficult um, to square everything off. And it had all been such a sort of a sudden crash out of the city for me. Um, and, and also, sorry, you mentioned very early on, you know, I'm, I'm in a wheelchair and that you, were, you had polio as a, as a kid. Yeah. That difference that you, I mean, did you feel the difference? You know, you're, you're living with your mates, you're probably the only mate in the flat who's in a wheelchair. There you are, you're jumping into the city. I mean, you're kind of doing the normal thing, but maybe you're feeling like an outsider or not at all. You just got used to your, you know, where you, where you fitted in. Life. Well, I think everyone was like, well, what, what has happened? Because I did a business degree and so that was what I should have been doing. The, wheel, the wheelchair at that point didn't really come into it. I'd... You know, I and, and in fact, actually, you know, in those early days, I think it's not like it is now where it's actually good to be different. But I, but I think certainly it's always helped me stand out. And I always think the the wheelchair box is something that I'm able to open and dive into as and when hmm. it has or hasn't been helpful. And lots of times it, it really isn't. But also sometimes uh, if I choose to play that card, I remember hearing George Michael talk about fame and he just used to say it's just a box that he can open and use I mean obviously he's extremely famous and probably couldn't get away from it but I've always I always remembered hearing him say that because I sort of feel the same about my mm. wheelchair which is it's a cupboard you can open and try and um, make work for you or not but then back at the BBC having pinballed around different departments I did get a placement in the comedy department and felt quite quickly at home there um, it was a relief at the time. You know, I, I had had a rough couple of years career-wise or lack of career-wise, and it was a real sense of quite quickly belonging, of mm. instinctively belonging. One of the first things they did was give me a big pile of sketches that people would send in, and I had no sort of formal training, and I would just read the sketches and would perhaps rather arrogantly find my pen start to cross bits out, move some parts of the script around and write notes all over it. And um, then I just thought, here I am. This yeah. could work out. And, and I imagine also at that time, because of your personality, I mean, you're, you know, to be in the comedy world, you have to be super smart, be able to access that super, super light side of life, but the super dark side of life. Um, and you also have to be able to tell a story. And I imagine just you as a human being, the reason why you probably felt instinctively at home was that was you. Absolutely right. It was everything that I, without sort of knowing it, yeah, you, you <laughs> I embodied built, you. you I were was built, built for it. I was built for it, and yeah. you know, I'm plenty dark enough in my character and in my thoughts, and I'm I'm pretty stupid as well. I'm, I like the silliness of life. Comedy's got some really bright people in it, really complex people in it, and it was good being around like-minded folk too. Stay with me for much more from my business shaper. It's Asha Taylor. We're going to talk about the dark, the light, and then actually moving into his own business and what that's been like for him. Uh, that's all coming up in a couple of minutes. But first, we're going to hear from one of our programme partners at Mishkondorea. Uh, some words of advice for your business. 
Hi, I'm Laura Chandler. I'm a partner in the corporate team at Mishkondorea and I head up our reorganisation and restructuring team. So why might you want to undertake a reorganisation or restructuring? There's a whole host of reasons, but some of the more likely ones are in preparation of a sale of the group or the business, or part of your group or business, for operational reasons. It might be to split the ownership, whether because of litigation, divorce, or just because. Or for tax planning reasons, such as inheritance tax planning. Careful planning is essential when undertaking a reorganisation. Some things that you want to think about are... Where does everything sit now? Where do you want it to sit going forward and why? What is your primary goal in undertaking the reorganisation? Also consider speaking to an expert to make sure that it's done in the most tax-efficient fashion. And what are the common pitfalls in undertaking a reorganisation? There are many, but here are just a few. Not fully preparing. Not taking the bank along with you so that they understand what you're doing and why. You might have charges or other security in place which needs releasing in order to undertake the reorganisation. Not having all of the shareholders fully on board. This can lead to delay and frustrations on all sides. And also timing. Think about whether there's anything time critical that has to be undertaken. And if so, factor that into your timetable. In essence, it's all in the planning and making sure you take the right advice early. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. There are many ways for you to enjoy all our former Jazz Shapers and indeed to hear this very programme again. You can ask Alexa to play Jazz Shapers and there you can hear many of the recent programmes or if you pop Jazz Shapers into iTunes or, I have to say this, your preferred podcast platform, then you can enjoy the full archive. But back to today is Asha Taller, one of the UK's best-known comedy producers and co-founder of Rough Cut TV. Um, we've established that you are, by definition, the embodiment of the, the comedy genre. Well, I've just established it for you. Um, you're at the Beeb, your pen's starting to move things around, you're, you're doing stuff. When did that big break happen? When was the first thing that you did of note for you, if, you, if you're to having to single out something? The first thing I did was The Office really. Um, How old were you at the time, Ash? I was about 27, I think. I'd met Stephen Merchant, you know, in one of the programmes. He was also a sort of a trainee coming through. And he uh, had a radio show. He used to work on a radio show at XFM. XFM. I used to listen. Him and Ricky were on a Saturday morning. And he said to me, you should meet my friend uh, Ricky Gervais. We've got this character that was at the time called Sleazy Boss. It was the beginnings of David Brent. And Stephen and I got to know each other well, but also... Our careers, we sort of had a discussion. He very much was going to go down the writing path. And I was like, if I can cling on at the BBC, I think I'm going to go down the producing path. And I think we realised that there might be some synergy there. It was a very specific project. Uh, He and Ricky had made a taster tape of a thing. And Stephen said to me, so he left the BBC and kind of went freelance and I stayed. And he said, well, why don't we work on this together? I met Ricky a couple of times and we got on and, and I, I just saw uh, that taster tape that they had made and I had a, I'm quite a conviction <laughs> politician for good or bad. My conviction has also frequently led me down terrible cul-de-sacs. But, <laughs> but, but I'm, I'm certainly a gut instinct person and was very clear, extremely clear very quickly that there was something in it. And when people say to me, I get asked a lot, did you think The Office was going to be as big as it was? Not as big as it was, but I was really sure and wouldn't take no for an answer that we had something really good. And so we all started 
to work on that. So that was really the first mm. thing that I did. We made a pilot, and I'm obviously shortening the story, but it, that was... The rest came for, from there. Yeah. In that business, in the business you're in, that conviction is critical, and I suppose it doesn't matter when you're wrong because people forget the bits when you're wrong and they remember the right stuff. Is that something you can teach people? I mean, now you run your own business and you've got young people, I imagine, that come into the business. Can you teach it or is it simply that instinct that is within you or it isn't? People know what they like, but what you can't teach is, I do like it when somebody comes into my office and they won't take no for an answer. So convinced are they that they've got something. So I I always admire that quality in, in somebody. You can't teach taste and you can't teach good or bad taste but you can hire taste so I think you do need to sort of work around like-minded people so for instance if I have somebody coming into my office and they consistently are bringing me scripts and I just think those scripts aren't good that's for me a problem I mean ultimately somebody has to make a judgment on it and it's it's there's a real I always think there's an arrogance actually because you sort of you're saying to people, I think I know what's funny. I have to think I know what's funny because it is my job. And people find that, I think, difficult. Well, like, well who, who makes you the arbiter of what's funny? Well, it's actually the only thing I have to do in my job. <laughs> you know, it's one of the main things I have to do. Like, you wouldn't go to... I always think you wouldn't go to a doctor and say, well, who, makes, who gives you the God-given right to say, take these tablets and you'll get better? So actually, that's the doctor's job. Please do your job. Help me get better. And so my job is to, you know, the first part of it is to sort of decide if I think something is funny. And that's instinct. And then you find out quickly if your instincts chime with a wider public or not. And very briefly, when you set up your own business, I'm assuming that that conviction was there. You're going, I can... I mean, what made you do it at that moment in time? Because the job is the job is the job. So it doesn't matter where you work... I guess it's like being a lawyer to give a word to our sponsors. You know, it, it's if you're a property lawyer, for example, presumably you're doing roughly the same job at Mishcon's as you might be doing at Sheridan's or, in, you know, you are advising people on property law. And I think if you're a comedy producer, you are trying to make hit comedy shows. Once I figured that out, I realised that I would rather have the control of doing it in my own company because I'm not averse to control. And I think, in, <laughs> I think when, when you have a, a singular vision, which you have to do for a sitcom, interference doesn't always help. It can often water it down. Therefore, having it as your own company can be helpful to the end creative. You were quoted, I think, uh, I think last year about starting your company. I think I'm part business and part creative, and I wanted to be across both of these things. I could work for any of my rivals and the job would be the same, but I thought you might as well do it for yourself. So part of that is re re reinforce what you said, but endorse what you said before. But the bit about the running of the business bit, where suddenly the money is your responsibility completely, the people coming into your office, yes, they may not be getting it right, but they're your responsibility and you're paying them money which feeds them and maybe their families too. How have you taken to that responsibility? It's quite an uneasy um, meeting of two worlds, I think, business and creativity. It's really hard to forecast in the world of television. It's the most random, insane, unpredictable thing that you can ever do for a living. Not only television, but then within that, comedy. So m marrying and trying to get an efficiently run business that sparks creativity can be very difficult. And... How much pressure to apply to your staff is a very awkward 
um, thing to get right, I think, in the world of television because creativity doesn't necessarily come from pressure. But if everyone's just walking around like nothing matters as well, that doesn't necessarily lead to good work. So there is no right way to do it. It's extremely culturally fluid. So how do you do it? Well, you know, actually at our company, we've just taken a, a look at it and we've decided to just perhaps put some targets in place. You know, I've had bosses in the past that have come and gone, well, where's my hit sitcom? And, you know, there's nothing that's going to lead to you not having a hit sitcom <laughs> than hearing that question. I want it now. Yeah, I want it now. And yeah. where is it? And I was like, well, it, you know, it doesn't, it's not a hamburger, right? And if I could, you know, serve you one up now, I really would. Mm. But so you want to make people feel supported and safe, but you also want to make people know that what they are doing matters. Unfortunately, in I think all television and film, 90% of what you do ends up in being a no. And so part of my job is managing disappointment, managing it for myself, but managing it for the staff who work for Rough Cut. And in fact, I'd say that number is probably low. You know, so most of, most of the time, you know, the development slate, the shows that we're trying to work on, don't end up on television. So that's a difficult starting point, actually, for any business. Mm. Um so you're, yes, the production line isn't quite as reliable as other, as you said, as a hamburger or washing powder or something like that. You can't quite process it in the way with specific things at the different stations. It doesn't work like that. I mean, you simply don't know at what point the project is going to fall apart. You know, and actually, if you talk to people who work in film, you know, you can get to the first day of shooting, and it happens all the time, and a financier just pulls the plug, and the project goes down. Television is actually becoming a little bit more like that as the finance becomes more piecing it together globally. In the old days, you'd go into the BBC, you'd go, we've got this script, French and Saunders are in it. They go, great, let's do it, here's the money, you deliver it. Now, it's a much more internationally focused and complicated business. It means budgets are getting bigger, they're harder to put together, projects are more fragile. Mm. Big stars are involved, guess what? They're really unreliable people. Where money meets fame does not bring out the best in the human race. So, it's a very complex brittle train set to be across as a business and that feeds into it feeling at times hugely exhilarating you get rewarded way beyond what you should at times i mean in people saying nice things to you and occasionally in money a lot of the time the heartache is endless you've put two years into developing something that you thought was a sure fire thing and it falls apart so a lot of my job is on the human side and keeping people on some sort of level so that they feel like can do their best work. And how does that square with your personality? Because if you're quite out there yourself, if you're not scared of saying something that quote-unquote is funny or a little bit, you know, you're, you're pushing somebody, are you consciously talking to yourself and saying, no, no, there needs to be a filter here, Ash. We need to handle this. I'm thinking this through rather than just being instinctive and saying what a load of rubbish or, or are you a bit more constructive than that? <laughs> no, I am. I I am constructive. I think. I think though, if you, you know, there does come a point where, you know, the hard realities of the business have to meet what you're saying to people, and I think if if people are consistently off track, in my opinion, and it is only in my opinion, but that has to count for something, then they can't stay at the company because you're kind of going. I think if somebody has five, you know, you kind of look at people's career. You can do it in the world of music. You can do it in the world of TV and film. If 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 a musician brings out five bad albums in a row, you might kind of go, they're not good. And so ultimately, we're all allowed a couple of fails, very much so 
but you need to ultimately look at the statistics at the end of somebody's career and kind of go, they had more hits than misses, they must know something. Stay with me for my final chat with Asha Teller. Plus, we'll be playing a track from Mr. Miles Davis. That's in just a moment. Don't go anywhere. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mish Kondorea. It's business, but it's personal. was Miles Davis with Teo. I'm with Ash Atala just for a little bit longer. I want to go back to the beginning of our conversation where you said you needed to earn money. Your dad said you've got to earn money because you'll look after yourself um, and it's a serious thing because otherwise life's not going to be quite as much fun. So hence you went to stockbroking. Now you've become a very successful person in the world of television. What is your relationship like with money these days? Because you must have made some and I imagine you hopefully are going to make more. Have you got that sense of security that you were looking for 20 years ago? You know, I've actually gone from my relationship with money. I think when I was young, I was actually quite tight. I was, I don't think I was the first at the bar at university and always had an anxiety about it. And now I I think it's quite healthy, although um, I'm not tight anymore, actually. I would even almost describe myself as generous. I'm a spender. You know, if you ask somebody you save or a spender, I've got very little interest in saving and I don't want to leave any behind. It does you know, worry me. It's always on my mind. Maybe it's my Egyptian blood. You sort of, even though you know you've got enough money for dinner tomorrow, somewhere in me, I worry about where that's going to come from. And so it's a complicated relationship, but it's one in which I just like to enjoy and want the people around me to enjoy Mm. anything that I've got or anything that I've got left. I want to break the bank and I want to, as they say, handbrake, handbrake turn into the grave uh, with none left. Yeah. And and what about your relationship with fame? Because, again, you've worked with people, some of whom, like Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant, to a point, are pretty famous, and not just famous in London or in the UK, but they are famous globally. Do you um, care about fame? Are you affected by people when you're that are famous that work with you, or is it just a thing? I am around it a lot. My own profile is just good in my business and comedy fans. You know, believe me, I'm far from troubled personally by fame, <laughs> but, you know, it's nice to be recognised in your field. I don't want the fame that I see others have. It's nothing but trouble. I think beyond getting a good table in your favourite restaurant very easily, I think, you know, when you look at people, you, might, you ask the question about money, where money and anonymity meet, I think is a really great place to be from what I've observed. Mm. And in terms of your own voice, as it were, Ash, you know, when you've, you, you said when you landed in the comedy department at the BBC, it was, it was totally natural, it was your home, and you stayed in that home comfortably because it is you, what you, your work is, is you. Is there a need in your head to continually express yourself, or is it merely that comedy gives you joy, or is it a bit deeper than that because again comedians and the comedy writers that I know and some I know really well there is the dark side but sometimes almost the humor of the darkness alleviates your own darkness is it do you write for that do you create for that or is it a bit am I becoming a bit too pseudo deep no you're not actually um it's a it's a really good question and I I do feel a constant need to keep saying something I mean you've met me and I don't 
stop talking and I feel in my work you have there's this this quite a visceral need to go on to the next thing without sounding pompous I used I'm a real football fan and Alex Ferguson always used to say he would win the FA Cup or do the treble and then the next morning you'd wake up and wondering what he was going to do next I really really feel that myself it's it's quite a burden at times it doesn't sort of go away it's a relentless and irritating drive that I wish would quieten a little bit as I get older I would be really happy for it to quieten but it, it hasn't quite yet I guess it will dim in due course but it but it won't go away now and so and by the way you need that anyway because television is project-based you know I'd, I don't have a job unless we keep creating shows there's no nobody asks you to make a tv program you ask them if you can so it's not a business of pull, it's a business of push. And I have to keep doing that. Please, somebody come and put the fire out, but it's there for now. <laughs> Help. May, may the fire continue to burn because obviously you are running a fabulous business and you do stuff which people enjoy. And at the end of the day, that's a brilliant product, isn't it? I mean, you've got to at some point go pretty good. Could, you could have been doing stockbroking, Ash. We wouldn't be having this conversation, I'm sure. Well, thank you. Um, it's been really lovely to talk to you. Um, thank you for your time. Just before I let you go, what's your song choice and why have you chosen it? Um, I've chosen, would Frank Sinatra fly me to the moon count as jazz? I guess it would, wouldn't it? Do you know why I like this song? Because it makes everyone into a good singer. There's something about this song that everyone, including myself, just launch into. And I think the, the range of the notes isn't that taxing somehow. So it can make pretty average singers sound good. And I like the sound of that. Fly me to the moon, let me play among the stars and let me see what spring is like on a Jupiter and Mars in other words hold my hand in other words baby kiss me that was Frank Sinatra with Fly Me to the Moon. I bet it made you sound like a good singer too. Uh, a great chat with Ash. He talked about having a fire within you and needing the drive to do the next thing. No one asks you to make a TV programme. You have to ask them. He talked about feeling at home and how important it was for him and indeed anybody to feel at home in the thing that they do so there is no separation between you and the thing that you choose to do in life. And he also talked about the fragility of the relationship between being a business person and being a creative person. And that's a really important lesson to learn. That's it from me and Jazz Shapers. Have a great weekend. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mish Kondorea. It's business, but it's personal. We hope you enjoyed that edition of Jazz Shapers. You'll find hundreds more guests available for you to listen to in our archive. To find out more, just search Jazz Shapers in iTunes or your favourite podcast platform or head over to mishcon.com forward slash jazzshapers.